Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the NYSHEC story with my friend, Gordon Downs. How's it going, Gordon? Very good and you, Joe. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, thank you. So, Gordon, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. So, I'm calling from my home office in New Jersey, but our actual office is based in New York City in the financial district. And yeah, I'm the co-founder and the CEO of, of NYSHEX, and uh, we're a technology company in the shipping logistics space, primarily focused on ocean um, solving a lot of big, complicated problems relating to the contract and the settlement process of those contracts. Yeah, that is a big problem. Before we hit record, and we we gab too much, and now we kind of we have to go over our time. But talk a little bit about that problem with the contracts. Uh, and I I think anybody who's been involved with containerized freight would say yes, there is a problem with it. But talk about how prevalent it is, and then talk about what you guys are doing to solve some of those problems. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive problem. And to put a number on it, about only 63% of contracts are fulfilled. And that's an industry average that actually predates the pandemic. So it's probably a little worse than that right now. So it's a big problem, especially when you consider how critical container shipping is for the global economy and world trade, et cetera. So why is, does this problem exist? That's a very long story. And I think it goes back to some of the legacy ways in which the shipping and logistics industry operated and, and the, the way it was regulated pre-reform, etc. But you know, the problem is big for two reasons, I would say. Number one is that the downstream impact of this problem is massive. We did a little study with uh, NJIT a few years back, and they quantified this in the region of about $23 billion of just pure waste stemming from this contract, uh, sort of the lack of contract structure, the lack of contract uh, fulfillment, etc. So it's a big problem, has a lot of impact. And the other thing, it's a big problem because it's hard to solve and there's enormous complexity in there. And quite frankly, I spent prior to joining NYSHEX, I spent a number of years at Maersk. And while I was at Maersk, we tried to solve this problem. And I know many carriers have for many years been working on trying to address this. And it's it's not an easy sort of silver bullet type of solution that you can find to this problem. Let me ask you a question. So you said 63% of contracts are fulfilled. What do you mean by that? As that, that doesn't sound like a billing issue. That sounds like I contracted for it and I never moved it? Precisely. So th- this is the issue. It, it's a sense of when people make contracts, and again, it varies trade by trade, segment by segment. But typically, let's just say a contract is valid for a year. When a carrier and a shipper sit down to sign these contracts, they agree on all types of things like the price and and the transit time and the number of containers to be shipped at that price, et cetera. But it's really hard to administer that contract throughout the life cycle. And you see all kinds of strange things happening. One example is that, you know, say we, I'm a carrier, you're a shipper, and we agree at a price of $1,000. And the spot price starts to go down below $1,000. And you suddenly have a big incentive to start shipping your right. cargo on the spot market or vice versa. If the spot price goes up, now I have an incentive to, instead of prioritizing your bookings, to prioritize the the bookings of the shippers who are paying the spot price because I can make a lot more margin on that. So that's just one example. And there's so many other reasons why these contracts don't get fulfilled the way people intend them to when they get signed. Right. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute because, again, I think anybody who's been involved with containerized freight will tell you 
this is a difficult business from the get go. I mean, even getting a good in getting a good quote takes forever. I'm sure there's people saying we can do it two hours, but used to be like overnight or two days to get even a quote. Yep. And that's just, there's a lot of people involved, a lot of different cultures, companies, different languages. It's a very complex business. But before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about you. That is not a New Jersey accent. I know that. So tell us where you grew up, where you went to school and give us some career highlights before you started NYSHAC. Yeah, sure. So I born, I was born and raised in South Africa and grew up in, in Durban, which is a big port city for the whole of South Africa, basically. And um, I grew up as a surfer and spent many days and uh, many, many hours on the uh, the beaches of Durban, looking out over the horizon, waiting for waves to come through and seeing these massive container ships coming in and out of the port. It was an interesting time because I finished high school in 94 and that was when South Africa ended apartheid and sanctions were lifted and suddenly the world was open for trade with South Africa. And of course... So were there sanctions, meaning you guys couldn't trade with much of the world? It Was it all, all commodities or just some? Well, there was some nuance. Certain products could be traded with certain countries, etc. But by and large, the vast majority of trade with other countries was, was limited. And of course... The, the intent of those sanctions was to put pressure on the government of South Africa to become a democracy and relift uh, apartheid and all those uh, unnecessary restrictions, etc. So the moment that was done, of course, suddenly there was a lot more opportunity for trade with South Africa. So it was fantastic. The shipping and logistics industry in South Africa exploded with growth once the uh, sanctions were lifted. And so for me, it was a, a wonderful opportunity to get into a high growth business. So I went to university after I finished high school, studied commerce, uh, or did a Bachelor of Commerce degree. In, did you uh, study back in South Africa? Yeah, at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Wait, say that again. <laughs> KwaZulu-Natal. That's the, that's the university I went to for undergrad and postgrad. I studied uh, commerce, economics, and actually specialized in maritime economics. And then I did a postgrad degree in law. And again, specialized in uh, maritime law. And I thought that I was going to become a maritime lawyer. I was very excited about this. And then uh, as I graduated from university, Maersk, which it at the time just bought Safmarine, which of course was the big national flag carrier in South Africa, was recruiting for this program, which at the time was called the MISA program or the Maersk International Shipping Education Program. And it was a wonderful opportunity to join a global company and to learn the industry and, and to live abroad, et cetera. So I went through the Maersk trainee program absolutely loved it. Ended up spending 12 years in total with Maersk and, and did an assignment in Japan for a few years, did an assignment in uh, in Denmark in the head office and you know, really just enjoyed my career at Maersk. I learned so much about the industry and um, had all these wonderful life experiences. But you know, for me, it was funny. Most of the roles I had at Maersk were commercial, many of which were what we would now call trade management roles. We are responsible for and service of ships and a profit and loss or a PL associated with that service. And you've got to manage the cost of those vessels and the port costs and everything else. And you also have to manage the revenue and make sure that the uh, you have the right customers on board that vessel and the right, what we call cargo mix, and you have the optimal revenue dynamic, et cetera. And it was a wonderful job. Absolutely loved my time as a trade manager at Merce. But one of the things which for me was really frustrating was we would make these enormous investments in chartering ships and committing to port windows, et cetera, on the basis of what we thought were contracts with our customers. We thought that these customers were going to give us certain amounts of volumes. And 
reality is a lot of times that volume never materialized. And we would go back right. to customers and say, what happened? We had an agreement and you were supposed to give us this volume. And very often those customers would tell us, well, sorry, when we agreed, we, we didn't know that we would be able to fulfill these contracts. And some of them even said to us, we agreed for the purposes of helping you to make the business case to invest in that vessel or those vessels to run the service. Right. Um, so let me make sure I understand this. So Maersk doesn't own all the boats that they're using, but they could charter a boat and say, or ship, I should say, they're not boats. So they could char charter a ship and say, this is going to go from, I'll make this up, from South Africa to Japan five times uh, over the next five months. And you charter that ship with the idea that Joe just said, I'm going to give you this many containers and Tom and Sue and everybody else said they're going to give you this many containers. And it, as soon as you said that, my first thought was to get the best price, I have got to give Gordon and Maersk really good volume. So I'm going to exaggerate ever so slightly. I mean, the same thing happens in Over the Road. I say, yeah, I'm going to tell Gordon, this is a growing business. I'm going to make the case for me. I, it's starting with, you know, this many containers for the next five months, but then it's just going to ramp up. And you're excited because you can go back to the boss and say, I've got a whole bunch of fast growing businesses. And maybe I don't exactly hit <laughs> what I'm supposed to. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And just on your point related to charters, the way that a lot of carriers do, and at the time Maersk used to operate, is that even if the vessel was owned, you would have to, as a trade manager, pay internal slot charter cost or an internal charter cost on your P&L. So whether it's a vessel that is chartered in or whether it's owned you, you, internally for the purpose of your P&L, you'd manage that. But, but you're right. And that incentive that a lot of shippers have to exaggerate on the, uh, the volume that they expect to deliver on the contract is real. And the consequences of exaggerating on those uh, contracted commitments is very little, if anything. Well, used to be. Now this is changing, but that certainly was the case back in the day. And, you know, just continuing on with the story, Joe, it was uh, extremely frustrating because, of course, when you're running a shipping service, it's these vessels are leaving at a fixed time every single week. And if the cargo is not on that vessel, the value of the space on that ship is perished. It's it's kind of like an airline when it takes off with an empty seat that the value of that seat is, is completely lost. So it, but I'd always assume that this is a problem that the carriers have to bear, but shippers benefit from it. But it, it proved out not to be the case because I spent some years also at SAB Miller, the, the big beer company, which is now part of ABM Bear, and I was involved in digital transformation and spent a lot of time looking at the shipping and logistics side. That, that is, that is, uh, that's the company, the South African Brewers, SAB, and they bought Miller Brewing? That's the one. That's the one. So, and then that got bought by Ambev? Well, it got bought by AB InBev, which was a combination of AmBev and Budweiser and basically a really big roll-up in the, the beer. And it's, in, it, it's interesting. We had all these local breweries for forever here in, in the States and probably everywhere. And then they rolled those up. And this as they roll them out, everybody and their brother opens a craft brewery. <laughs> so, so somebody has to do that later. So anyway, I didn't want to get off track. So you, you went to SAB and what what did you learn from the shipper side? Well, what what was very obvious is that it's one thing if you've got a ship and you're trying to optimize that ship and someone doesn't show up for that sailing and you end up with an underutilized vessel. There's a sunk cost to that. But what you also realize is that when you're running a supply chain and the aluminum for your can line 
doesn't make it on time or the glass bottles for your production line doesn't make it on time. The cost is enormous. And it's, it's definitely not smooth sailing from a shipper point of view because, you know, when I was a carrier, you know, one of the things we used to do, of course, we anticipate a certain amount of cargoes are going to show up each week. So we overbook the ships. Sometimes you get it. Sometimes airplane, you airlines do it too, right? Absolutely. We've all lived like with that. <laughs> everyone does it. Except with the airlines, I think there's a, there's a much more concerted effort to balance. And if you, for example, have a situation where the seat that you bought on the airline has been oversold, the airline will be very deliberate about booking you on another flight and getting you to agree and return for some compensation in the world of shipping and logistics. It's just, well, tough luck. You know, we, we overbooked the ship and your slot was taken by someone else. So you'll have to try, try your luck next week and see if you can get on the vessel then. And, and of course, as, as a carrier, you don't want to do that, but you have to, because you have to right. mitigate the risk of this vessel being underutilized. And when you see the impact of that on a supply chain, the cost is enormous, opportunity cost, the contingency cost, the cost is significant. And I think that's really what gave me the, the clear conviction that this is a problem which is not just a carrier problem, it's also a shipper problem. And if we can solve this problem, both carriers and shippers are going to benefit. And there, there really is a true win-win from this uh, whole issue. So that's why I got the, the necessary conviction to, to go off and start this. So that was that was the problem you saw. So when and when and why did you leave South Africa? I know you said you traveled to, you lived in Denmark and you lived in Japan. That was when you were working with Maersk. When did you move to the United States? So quite frankly, left Maersk for a little while, went to business school and did my MBA at Cambridge University. And then after I graduated, I immigrated to the States with my wife and my wife's family and rejoined Maersk here. So I spent another two, two plus years with Maersk in the US and then ended up uh, shifting to, to SAP Miller. So that's that's the sort of the connecting the dots from Maersk into SAP Miller. Yeah. So what was your first impression? I mean, so what surprised you about coming to the United States? Well, what, I, I know US TV reaches a lot of places, but what surprised you and your, your wife when you came here? The one thing is the impression that you get from the TV and Hollywood is obviously very, very different from reality. And, and we now know that, of course. No, we didn't. You're watching Miami Vice and you thought that might be where I live. Exactly. I watched Baywatch and I thought, well, this is what... <laughs> No, I mean, look, I'd been to the U.S. many times before, and, and so I knew exactly what we we're getting ourselves into. But for me, what's great about living in the U.S. is that, number one, is I think the, the culture is very open to sort of immigrants. And, you know, it, again, the U.S. is considered a nation of immigrants by, by many people. And I think when, when you live in the U.S. and you're not from the U.S., people are very interested in the backstory. And, and a lot of other countries are not like that. A lot of countries are like, oh, you're not the same nationality as me. You're an outsider. You know, it's kind of looked down on. Whereas I think in the U.S., it's it's almost uh, like it's normal and it's it makes something yeah. a little bit more interesting, at least as far as the conversation goes. So, yeah. And you before we hit record, you were kind of pointing out that, you know, one of the advantages of the United States is as one of those settler countries is, and we're not the only ones, Canada's the same. I think uh, New Zealand can be like that. There's others that still take a lot of immigrants. And the one thing about these countries is we get the kind of the best and the brightest coming over. So if somebody says, hey, I want to go and I want to be study engineering at MIT. And then later on says, you know, I don't want to go back to my old country. We're like, well, we got a place or two for you. Yeah. <laughs> you might you might do some coding over at NYSHAC. <laughs> no, exactly. I think that's one of the great things about the US and, and the immigration policy is that if you are extremely talented and if you do have the opportunity to be educated in the US, which is also naturally filtering out some of the, the brighter students, et cetera, there is a pathway to immigration. I think that's extremely smart yeah. for the US and it results in all kinds of 
you know, innovations that you know may not have happened if those policies weren't. Yeah. Oh God, we're we're lucky. I mean, the, the success of the immigrants in the United States is what makes the United States so successful. By the way, before I forget. Uh, before we record, we we're talking about South Africa. My sister's husband is from South Africa, and my sister and her family lived in South Africa for four years until recently they moved back. And I, as soon as we hit, uh, as soon as we got online here today, I noticed your little um, plaque behind you, the picture of what is it, Rodriguez, right? Yep, that's it, Rodriguez. And uh, what was? Well, why don't you tell the story real quick? So, uh, just for human <laughs> interest here. <laughs> this is a story which is. Unless you watch the documentary and really get into it, it's, it's hard to believe you think that I'm. Making what is it? Searching for Sugar Man or Seeking for Sugar, Sugar Man? That's the documentary. And it's it's all about this uh, bootleg copy of a recording by an artist called Rodriguez that made its way to South Africa. And during the apartheid era, there was controls over you know what could be published as far as music and, and so on. And, and this uh, went sort of under the radar and grew organically and through sort of mixtape recordings spread like wildfire. And this became. Some of his songs, Rodriguez's songs, became sort of anthems against apartheid, which was great. And right. so there's a lot of um, there was a lot of I don't know, like deep emotional attraction, sorry, attachment to this music, a lot of nostalgia that comes along with it. And everyone in South Africa just assumed that Rodriguez was a famous international artist and similar to Bob Dylan or whoever else might right. be out there. But what we didn't realize is that he was a struggling artist in Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah, he's from my hometown. That's why I know of him. And it's funny, he grew up in Dearborn, Detroit, and I think he still lives in the area. Um, you mentioned that he's getting old and maybe blind and uh, yeah. not touring. But uh, So he, do you guys, my brother-in-law said the same thing. He says he was the voice of change and he says everyone who was young in South Africa at that time who wanted to see the apartheid change, he said, we all knew Rodriguez. And he goes, and then when you leave South Africa, you realize no one else knows who he is for the most part. But the funny thing is, when you watch the documentary, you have to see it if you're interested in this kind of stuff. But Rodriguez didn't know that he was a, a famous musician in South Africa. And so, and he, and he, he worked and at an assembly plant at, at Ford, I think. Exactly. It was, it was a blue collar sort of worker and um, playing you know, music for fun and bars, etc. And, you know, and he's the voice of the revolution. Exactly. And he goes back to South Africa and there's a tour that gets set up for him. And he walks into a stadium with 90,000 people. And every single one of those people knew all of his songs and would sing along to it. And it is, uh, you get, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's a phenomenal story. I remember back in the eighties, I had an album and it was, um, I forgot the name of it, but it was, wouldn't, um, it was all these artists, international artists, Bruce Springsteen, a whole bunch that weren't going to play at Sun City in South Africa because it was a resort, probably apartheid resort. And so, it, and there was a songs that was, uh, all these African singers and, uh, U.S. singers from all over the world. And I had that album for a long time. Me and my friends played it till it broke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Young people look it up, uh, type in, album and there's pictures it's like a big cd <laughs> anyway get, getting back on track so you moved over here you went back to work at maersk and what were you doing at that point and then how long until you jumped in and started nyshack well so like i said i spent two years with maersk in the u.s we had a wonderful time with maersk and again uh, such a great company with so much opportunity for at least for me when i was there to learn and develop and then I spent three years with SAD Miller, another fantastic company. Again, lots of opportunity, and I was really delighted to be part of that. But the thing, um, the thing about my time at SAD Miller, I kept thinking about the fact that this massive global container shipping industry is running headfirst into this problem associated with contract, and no one is solving it. And 
it's, it's, you know, people joke and say shipping is like the mob. Once you're in it, it's hard to get out. And I think in my case, that was true because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And even though I loved my time at SP Mill and have so many fond memories there and, and really think it's an interesting industry, the, the shipping industry just kept kept churning through the back of my mind. And so eventually in, in 2015, developed enough conviction to say this is worth quitting my very nice job with SAP Miller with all kinds of free beer and other wonderful opportunity <laughs> to pursue Nishex. And of course, no regrets in having done so. It's it's been uh, it's been a great journey and I've learned a lot both personally and professionally and it's been it's been very rewarding. But uh, just to sequentially walk you through the steps. So we we quit our day jobs myself and my co-founders and we started the company in 2015. We piloted in 2016 and went to the big carriers and, and some big shippers and said, look, we think that by independently creating this technology to address this problem, we can improve the contract fulfillment rate from what it was, 63%, give or take, up into the, the 90s. And people said, well, look, if you can do that, that'd be phenomenal. Have a try. Let's, see, let's run a pilot. So we ran a pilot in 2016 and it worked, which was phenomenal. And then in 2017, we raised some capital at Goldman Sachs lead our Series A fundraise. We got the Federal Maritime Commission to approve some agreements that we filed wow. to, to set this up. Yeah. And then we launched in 2017. And and that's been great. I mean, we've been growing consistently year over year, 3x at least, which is which is exciting. We've had to make some sort of tweaks to the business model as we go because we've the business, well, I should say the industry has evolved a lot since 2017. And as, a, as such, we need to evolve our technology and, of course, our position in the market and everything else. And all of this has been very positive and um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful journey we've been on so far. And I think it's honestly just the beginning. So let's talk about your customers. Is the, Are the shippers your customer or are the carriers your customer? Or is it both? <laughs> okay. This, this is a very important point and, and it's a little nuanced, but... The way we look at it is we don't have customers, we have members. And a shipper is the customer of a carrier. And we, like I say, treat everyone, carriers, shippers, freight forwarders, or MUOCCs as members. And so when you join NYSHEX and you get access to our technology and, and all the services that we offer, you know, we're, we're very deliberate about maintaining our neutrality and our transparency. And so right, you would be nothing without it, right? Exactly. And it's a critical piece of the puzzle. And so, you know, we, we're very deliberate about making sure that we serve all our members equally and we're not. Yeah. So let's tick through some of these. So if I'm a shipper, what, what are the problems I have that you guys solve for me? So let's, why don't you describe two or three of the problems they have and then two or three of the solutions that you bring to the party? Sure. So, so one of the problems that you're probably running into is the fact that you might agree to something and that you're not getting the level of service that you uh, agree to with your carrier partner and then maybe they don't have a, a, a place available for my freight or, or it's late. Or... Correct. Yeah. It could be that you've agreed on hundred containers a week and you're only getting 50. I mean, that's very common. Another problem that you might be running into is that when things go off track, it's hard to know what caused that to go off track. Is it something you're doing and maybe your origin booking team is booking with the wrong carrier or is it there's problems with getting empty containers released from the container yard. There's a myriad of things that could be causing these problems some of which will be related to the shipper, some of which may be related to the carrier. It's very hard to discern what's causing those problems. And, and I can talk a little bit about how we solve that. Another set of problems is related to the landed cost, because if you are, if you have a contract and you expect that you can land widgets in the United States, for example, at a price of X cents per widget, 
and suddenly you can't get on your contract or the contract that you agreed to doesn't match the invoice you end up paying, that could be X plus many more cents on the cost of your, the landed cost of your widget. So, you know, that all that work associated with reconciling your landed cost with the terms of your contract and all that um, sort of complexity of having to re-look at your, your margins and your sort of your buying decisions you know, and your sourcing patterns, et cetera, it's significant. So these are massive problems that shippers have and it all results, it, like it all fits under this big umbrella of right. supply chain resilience, supply chain optimization, et cetera. But that's on the shipper side. We can talk about the carrier side as well if you want. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges is if I'm a shipper, let's just say I, I have that responsibility to get those containers here. I might be head of operations of a of a factory. Right? I might uh, I might be a supply chain guy, but I am not an expert in those very complex contracts. And so when something goes awry, I know nothing about it. And by the way, Steve Ferrar, who we talked about before we hit record, Steve Ferrar said, in, if you look at the job description of any supply chain manager or every shipping manager, he says at the bottom, it always will say something about must be able to review and audit and fix these problems. And he said, it's always on there, but it's at the end. And he goes, and almost nobody knows how to do that. He says, it's always in the job description, but they don't know how to do it. And, and nobody's there. And, and, and if you call the carrier and say, Hey, can you educate me on, I, I think you screwed me on this one. Can you educate me? They're like, no, <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> you owe me this money. I'm not going to explain to you why you don't owe me that money. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the funny part about this, well, I'm not sure it's funny, but the interesting thing about, about this is that I, in most cases, I don't think there's any sort of bad faith intent no. on one party to screw the other. It is just incredibly complicated when you just think yes. about it. You know, the average contract, uh, you know, there's a thousand plus containers in, in that contract. And every one of those containers probably has, you know, 30 different links in the supply chain where there's dependencies that one person or one company needs to perform a task in order for the next company or person to perform right. their task. And just being able to understand what happened, you almost need to to be a forensic investigator to go and do that. And, and it's hard. And it's it's not like people don't want to know what's happening. It's it's just it the, the technology and the data isn't organized in a way there's there's not a clear process that has been established to try and normalize these things. And you know, every carrier, every supply chain is, is slightly different. And so there's there's it again, it's not just one party trying to screw the others. Well, no, I'm sure no. there are cases of that, but it's it's there's for the most part, it's just enormous the complicated problem and the coordination around that problem is is where where or how you have to solve it basically. Yep, and I said it before we hit record, and I truly believe this complexity is the enemy of quality. If there's a very complex process or a very complex procedure that we have to follow, the chances of there being problems is much higher than if we have a very straightforward, simple um, process. And also. Associated with that is distrust. If 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 I tell you, Gordon, it's going to cost ten thousand dollars, and then it, the bill comes and it's eleven thousand five hundred, and I say, oh, I exercise this clause and blah blah blah, and you go, God darn it! I just, you, you're not looking and saying, is Joe right to do this? As much as you're saying, I can't work well with that guy. He's he might be dishonest, or he's confused or whatever. I don't want to work with them. And it's not me. It's not you. It's the complexity that we've both been involved in. And that's what we have. And you guys are trying to 
again, trying to make this clearer. So we talked a little bit about what you could do for the shipping side. What about for the carriers? And by the way, do you also work with the intermediaries, the freight forwarders? All right. So what do you do for those fellas? So from the carrier point of view, there's uh, the, the complexity a little bit like I described when, when I was at Maersk and you're trying to optimize your ship is it's hard to know what cargo is actually going to show up. So creating more integrity in the contracts addresses that problem. You can anticipate better what cargo is going to show up. So you can optimize the ships, you can optimize the network. But also, just like it is the case with a shipper, when things go wrong, it can be very difficult to know where the problem is. And again, the carrier doesn't have a complete data set because they have data about what they did, but they don't know about things that are outside of the, the systems that they, they, they operate with, etc. So there's a, a lot of mystery involved in so getting to the root cause of reasons why things don't perform. And also from a carrier point of view, even if a carrier has the data and they can see or they believe they can see that the, the, the cause of a shipper not making it onto a vessel is the shipper's fault, it's actually very hard for them to go after that shipper and say, look, you, you messed up. You were supposed to load this on my ship and you didn't because the carrier is inherently biased. Not to say that they're acting with every, with any bad faith, but you know, it is in their own interest to make a determination whereby it's not their fault, it's someone else's they've been, fault. They've been screwed plenty of times. with, And so it, you, you develop biases because all you're seeing is your own side. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's so, natural. They're only humans. So from a carrier point of view, being able to have some sort of uh, independent verification to say, okay, we have integrity in these contracts. And when they go off track, you know, there's independent verification to say whether it's our fault or whether it's the shipper's fault. And therefore, there's a course of action that either party could take to, to course correct and, and get these contracts back on track. So that's very valuable. And, and again, this drives not just, like I described, network utilization, optimization, vessel optimization, but it also improves the customer experience for a carrier. The customers feel like as if they're being treated more fairly, et cetera. There's a more digital or transparent process. And it also improves internal workload. So the carriers don't have to spend many man hours doing these forensic investigations into what actually happened if there's a technology out there that can automatically identify here's where the right. gap took place and then here's how we need to, to, to fix it in order to get this back on track. So I was just going to say, is there, there is a return on investment for all these organizations? Oh, absolutely. It's, a, it's an enormous return on investment. It really just depends on, on how you calculate it. And, um, so so it, one, one, favorable, one favorable deal could pay for your whole year, I'm guessing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have uh, case studies, some of these public knowledge, but where you know, customers are saying, well, sh our members, shippers, are saying that because they had a contract that ran through NYSHEX, during the pandemic, they essentially saved Halloween. Um, and these are companies that are providing sort of all these treats and costumes and so on for Halloween. And they wouldn't have made it to getting all their inventory into the stores oh, yeah. for Halloween if it weren't for these contracts. And that is perishable. Uh, the day after Halloween, candy is not worth very much money. We're all sick of it by then. Absolutely. So, you know, that's, so there's enormous value in this from the carrier point of view. And then the other one is just on your point around intermediaries or NBOCCs is, for a lot of NBOCCs, they're doing the best they can to balance the commitments they make to their carriers and the commitments that they get from their customers. And for a lot of the NBOCCs, it's 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 hard to essentially like manage that risk where they get stuck in the middle. Right. For example, they commit something to a carrier, but their customer doesn't commit to them, and then there's a breakdown, and they're left sort of holding the bag in between. So one of the big uh, value drivers that NBOCCs have from NYSHEX is they can use NYSHEX on both sides of the transaction as a back-to-back. -back. So essentially they can 
run their contract, the master contract that they make with the carrier on the application. They can run the contracts that they have with all their different customers on the application. And they can see how all of these contracts perform back to back. And it allows them to essentially like hedge the risk that what they've bought, they're able to sell. And it also allows them to basically lock in whatever margins they might be making on that contract. So it's enormously valuable for for everyone in this sort of value chain, being able to have that contract integrity and the technology that allows everyone to see what's actually happening. And again, very importantly, course correct as things go off track so that the contracts perform better. I'm imagining that after you have knowledge of this is a consistent problem, you can go back and change the contracts, right? So get a little more clarity in next year's contract or next month's contract because we ran into all these problems last time and you guys are kind of being met the referee <laughs> in the middle that says, Hey, this is where this is, this is the call. Yeah. This is where in this, in this case you were wrong last week, it was you, but we're going to, we're going to get this straightened out. Yeah. But I think this is a very important fine point on that where, you know, to some extent we act as a neutral, you could call us a referee if they, if you wanted to, but, but really the, the problem is much deeper than that. It's not like there's there's a need for a referee. There's a need for integrity and there's a need for trust. But right. the problem, the fundamental problem that needs to be solved is a problem of coordination. And it's a problem of amalgamating all the information into one centralized sort of system of record where both the carrier and the shipper or the NBO can look at that data and say, yes, that represents what happened in our view. And it reconciles back with the data that might be in their systems. And all the data can be sort of harmonized and synthesized. And then on top of that, <clears throat> building these what we call workflows so that when something does go wrong, we can, of course, make the data very clear. So there's no guesswork on what actually happened, where the data exists, we provide it. But there's a very efficient way whereby the carrier can look at that and say, okay, yes, there's some additional information which the system didn't pick up. We're going to now take, a, for example, a report from the container yard to demonstrate there were, in fact, empties available on that day. And then the shipper might come back and say, okay, I see all the data, but I want to be able to provide some information from my trucker where he took photos of all the hotel, the containers in the yard, and all of them had holes in the roof. I'm, of course, making this up. But all of that information gets uh, sort of centralized in, in one location, right. and it makes it easy for everyone to keep track and uh, avoids a situation where there's this sort of people don't know where the problem is. And then you end up with a he said, she said, one party. Yes, exactly. So I know um, I know I'm going to lose you in a few minutes. So I have a few more questions for you. So my first question is: I know you guys have had explosive growth. Talk. So I think you told me you have a, over 100 employees now, which is fantastic for a tech company. I mean, that's <laughs> you're growing as a tech company to have 100 employees is quite a few. So talk a little bit about that growth and what you've learned along the way. What 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 were some of the lessons you learned? Well, look, I think in the early days the growth was it didn't come straight out the gates. I mean, when we launched, we actually had to make a lot of improvements to the product. And for me, what what was critical was just being true to the mission and our mission. And it has always been focused on trying to improve the reliability of shipping through digitizing the contract process and everything around that, because we really do believe that's the root cause. And by staying focused on that mission, as the industry has evolved, we've been able to evolve our products and evolve our positioning in the market to be able to address that problem. And, and so I think that's that's been really key as far as like what's allowed us to, to tap into that growth. As far as scaling a company, I mean, these are things where that when you go from a company of 20 people to a company of 100, it's a fundamentally different company. And we've seen, I suppose, let me put it this way. 
we have run into issues in the past, especially in the early days, where the culture wasn't exactly what we wanted it to be. And quite frankly, we took a lot of steps to make sure that we, we get our culture right. So, for example, now, every time we hire new people, and we've done this ever since we were 20 people, we've been very deliberate about testing for culture, making sure that people who join us know what our culture is. So if it's not a good fit for them, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean right. they couldn't be successful elsewhere. But we sort of help them self-deselect and vice versa. We, we try to make sure we don't hire anyone that, that wouldn't be a good fit. But just by going through all that process is uh, is allowed us to maintain, I'd say, a very, very healthy culture. And it's funny because I used to basically interview every new employee until we got to about 80 people. And then it became just too difficult to find time in my calendar for all these new right. interviews. So now I've had to sort of develop a framework where I can have everyone on our executive team be able to do these culture interviews and, and test for these things. Because, again, skills are, are one thing. Of course, you have to have skills and, and so on. But culture is just as important as it is to have the right skills for the role. I hear this very often from founders is if you don't get the culture right, and they, somebody said the other day, you've got to make sure you, your executive team is right because they're the ones who will ultimately be hiring. So if they're a little off and then the people they hire are a little further off, then you, you found yourself in the, in the, in the ditch. Absolutely. So final question. So what's next for you? What's next for your business and what's next for this industry? And when I say the industry, I mean containerized freight and shipping. If you don't mind, I'll take those questions in reverse order. So start what's next That's for fine. in the logistics industry. I think this industry has begun a transformation, a, a digital transformation, but also a change in the way that it operates. And I think the pandemic really was a catalyst for speeding up the rate at which that trans transformation was taking place. And I think it's exciting. Um, I think this sort of next chapter in the evolution of the container shipping industry, having come out of years of consolidation, price wars, et cetera, to a, a world where it's going to be investing in more technology, innovation and in products, innovation in uh, types of vessels and integrated and services. They're investing in over the road too, right? Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a really wonderful time to be in this industry with enormous opportunities for, for everyone involved. So I think it's, it's, it's extremely exciting. And what's next for us at NYSHEX is really leaning in even more with the technology because what we've realized is by solving the problem associated with the contracts and the downstream settlement or fulfillment of that contract, it is the root cause of many other problems in the sort of value chain. And you know, we talked a lot about in the past how 30 odd percent of all freight invoices are disputed. And that's largely driven by the fact that the contracts aren't exactly crystal clear. And it's not very clear what actually happens. So trying to reconcile the invoice with the contract becomes quite difficult. But, and of course, there's an enormous industry around trade audit and payment. But what we're excited about is solving some of the root cause issues so that the, the symptoms are, are way less further down the, the sort of value chain. So, you know, for us in moving more into sort of freight audit and payments, where we're not necessarily auditing, but we really are fixing at the problem at the source. Is exciting. So getting more involved in the sort of the financial elements of the, of the supply chain is going to be key for us. And then for me personally, I mean, I, I just love working with this team of people that we have at NYSEX. I love the industry. I think it's such a, it, it's, it's an exciting industry with so many problems and some people get put off by problems. I think that problems are wonderful because it gives people an opportunity to innovate and there's room for change and people are usually receptive to it. So I love the fact that we've got this industry and it's going through this renaissance sort of period. And I love the team that we've hired at the company and it's, it's a pleasure working with everyone here. So for me, it's just I'm, I'm excited to see the next chapter of the company. I'm excited to see the next chapter of the uh, of the industry. And I'm excited to grow along with the team that we've 
built out here at, at NYSEX. Right. So one of the things that I don't want to dwell on it, but I think you already know this that I've pointed out to the uh, listeners is when you think about an over the road transaction where maybe you get a carrier come up, pick up my freight, there's, there's two people probably in the same geographic area making that, those decisions, two, three, four people, max, maybe a receiver, a pick a shipper. When you talk about your business, that containerized shipping, I think in freight forwarding, there's 14, 15, 16 people who are touching this stuff. Some are in foreign countries who speak different languages. There's tons of companies, tons of a number of countries, languages, cultures, time zones. So this is an extremely complex problem, no matter how you deal with it, because just the, the, the scale of the people so, you know, when we look at over-the-road freight and think of, oh, well, there's not many problems. Well, there's not that many moving parts. When I move over to uh, to Gordon's part of the world, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of problems. So I love that you guys are wading in and solving that. Thank you, Joe. No, I appreciate it. It's exciting. So one last thing before you go, who's your sweet spot? Who do you guys serve? And how do we reach out and talk to you? Oh, by the way, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and your website and anything else you give me. But who's your sweet spot? Who do you guys serve? Yeah, so we are open to serve anyone. I mean, the key for us really is uh, we're, we are typically involved in the process once a carrier and a shipper, and of course the shipper could be an NBO or the carrier could be an NBO, but once the carrier and the shipper agree to a contract and then are looking for a way to settle that contract using technology, using neutrality, transparency, et cetera. So there is, there's no limits. In the early days, we were very focused on certain market segments, for example, agriculture in the midsize of the market. Now we're serving major enterprise accounts and small little accounts. We're serving NVOCCs, we're serving carriers. But I think really the sort of selecting factor is the carrier and the shipper need to be at a point where they say, okay, now we want to be able to benefit from the technology that uh, NYSEX has, has to offer, basically. That's, that's excellent. Gordon, thank you so much. And I know we went past our time. I appreciate you doing that for me. Again, thank you so much. And I, I really love what you guys are doing because this is an innovation that is well past due. So I'm glad you guys are waiting in. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate your time. Take care. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.